and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, there's been a lot written lately about the issue of Chinese agricultural investments in Africa, particularly land acquisition. And in part, this came out earlier this year because Professor Deborah Baudigam released a book called Will Africa Feed China? So that kind of brought it up to the surface. You and I featured uh, Professor Baudigam on our show last year before the book's launch prior to FOCAC which was the Forum on China-Africa Cooperation Summit. And there's been a lot of discussion that comes out. And so interestingly enough, it recently came up again because the perception that people have about what the Chinese are doing in the agricultural sector seems to be very, very different from the reality. And that's in part because, as you've brought up, Kobus, many times in the past, land is such a sensitive issue in Africa. You know, the the experience of, of having your land taken away from you is such a fundamental historical trauma in, in many African societies that it tends to kind of echo through to some of the some of the, the disquiet around Chinese involvement in the country. So stories about land grabs and especially governments giving away large swaths of, of African land to Chinese companies or, or, you know, other Chinese actors, they tend to grab a lot of press. But what, um, you know, kind of new research is showing is that a lot of that is actually not happening. And some of that new research is coming from Ian Schoons, who's a professor for professor, so, professorial, I'm sorry, I keep getting that word wrong, professorial <laughs> fellow at the Institute of Development Studies at the University of Sussex. And uh, Dr. Schoons, who just wrote or published last month an essay called Chinese Engagement in African Agriculture is Not What It Seems. Welcome to the program, Dr. Schoons. Thank you very much, Eric. And Glad so you had a pretty headline-grabbing headline there. I mean, there's a lot of attention that kind of went to that headline. It's not what it seems. It seems that you are implicitly challenging the assumption that people assume that there's this land grab. And that was an issue, of course, that Deborah Braudigam addressed in her book. Why isn't it what it seems? Well, I mean, when we did our research, and it was over the last three years with a whole bunch of colleagues from China, from uh, different countries in Africa, we started out with that assumption. It's what you read in the media. It's what you here in, in some of the policy commentary. But actually, when we started investigating on the ground what was going on, it was a much more complicated picture. And the big headline story of land grabbing, as Deborah Brightingham has, has indeed shown, uh, was not the main story. But that said, Chinese engagement in Africa and agriculture is growing, is important, and land, as Kobus just mentioned, is a, is a really key issue and very sensitive. And so can you give us an idea of what what kinds of, of in, you know, kind of in, interactions or collaborations in the agricultural field did you actually find? Well, when we started the research, we thought we would uh, consult some databases and get a list of what was going on and map it all out. And that was all in our proposal. Um, but of course, uh, th these databases are either inaccurate or just don't exist. So we had to start really from scratch. We were working with colleagues in Ethiopia, in Ghana, in Mozambique and in Zimbabwe, each of which have substantial uh, investments from China in, in agriculture. And what we had to do really to start, start out our research is, is find out, well, who was doing what where. And it took a while. It must be said, um, 
And actually, there's a huge diversity. There are these investments in often former state farms, state-owned land. Uh, for example, the Shai Shai scheme in Mozambique, which is quite well known, but there are a number of others elsewhere, which are large land areas uh, taken over by Chinese companies, state-owned companies by, by and large, uh, which are beginning to rehabilitate those farms and, uh, and grow crops. Some of them have produced some uh, reverberations in local communities who've been occupying the land before, but by and large, one couldn't describe them as, as large-scale land grabs. In addition, and perhaps far more importantly, Chinese agricultural companies have started in, to invest in uh, contract farming of various sorts. We see this in Zimbabwe, for example, in the tobacco growing area. After uh, 2000, Ch China was welcomed into Zimbabwe, partly because international, other international investors were leaving. Um, and uh, su significant investment in contract farming uh, of tobacco and also to some extent cotton has uh, really benefited local uh, smallholder farmers in that country. Do Zimbabwe... And then, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Carry on. No, I was just going to say, do, do Chinese farmers in Zimbabwe face some of the same pressures that white farmers face there? Uh, no, by and large, this contract farming is with uh, black smallholder farmers, many of whom are uh, beneficiaries of the 2000 land reform. So they interact with Chinese companies uh, in selling their, their product, but also Chinese companies provide input supplies, fertilizer and pesticides and so on, and some, some degree of other support. So it's a mutually beneficial arrangement, and the Chinese companies in particular have been exporting very significant quantities of tobacco to China, which remains the, uh, the largest global consumer of tobacco products. So, in other words, it's, uh, it's an investment that supports uh, smallholders by and large and not, as it were, constructed as a, as a land grab. So we, we actually found re remarkably few Chinese farmers actually on the ground. Uh, there were some investments in these, um, in, through these state-owned companies, which I mentioned before. But what was particularly interesting, and this came up in Ethiopia and in Ghana to some extent, were small-scale migrant farmers who had come fro from China with often construction companies or mining companies investing in the, the various countries and decided that they would move into a niche market which is growing in quite a number of African countries, which is the production and supply of Chinese vegetables for Chinese expatriate populations. Now, this isn't a big story uh, and doesn't involve very much land, but it's an important economic niche that uh, Chinese entrepreneurs uh, who are migrants to Africa are taking up, and it was a, a study that uh, we we looked at as part of our part of our work. This is that you know kind of it opens an interesting theme because what I was going to ask is so you know except for for the food crops, the non-tobacco crops, um, are the, where are they going? Are they are you know how much of it is being exported back to China? How much is it for local African consumption? And you know kind of now you've actually shown that there's actually a third option there, which you know kind of providing specific kind of crops for Chinese expat communities. So, so in, in, the, in the bigger picture, like where do these crops tend to go? Well, as I mentioned, obviously t uh, tobacco is, is exported um, uh, principally to China. Uh, cotton has a variety of destinations, including China. Um, the uh, grain crops, by and large, are for local consumption, local markets. 
Um, the big issue there, which we picked up in a number of countries, is, is were, were the Chinese farms producing the right type of, of grain crops? As you, as you know, in large parts of Africa, the principal uh, staple is, is maize, whereas growing rice is for a, particular, uh, for a particular elite consumption, and very often the rice grown uh, was not one that uh, people wanted to consume. So there were mismatches there for entry into the local market, which were being rectified over time. And as I say, yes, yeah, small-scale production, that's, again, very much local uh, market, product, market uh, production. So by and large, overall, uh, in areas where China is engaging in agricultural production, uh, it's, for, it's, for local, it's for local consumption on the national market. This is, this is very confusing for me because... You know, Deborah Browdergham in her book kind of demystified and debunked the idea that China is kind of buying up vast tracts of land. Your research is debunking the myth that, you know, that the Chinese are somehow being exploitative when in fact you're talking about how in many different levels there's actually a contribution by Chinese agricultural uh, either it's people or it's by technology and skills transfer or it's by government support from the Chinese. Why is it that you think that this narrative exists of the Chinese colonizing Africa. And that word colonizing is very important because it does imply land acquisition when you colonize somewhere. Why do you think that still persists when, in fact, so much of the data and the information points to the contrary? Well, I think it persists in certain circles. I mean, there's a there's a, a wider narrative associated with competitive geopolitical positionings of different uh, countries in the world that will will always try and persuade, uh, portray uh, China or other competitors in a negative light. But I think, you know, partly the PR machine of the Chinese state hasn't been very effective at debunking some of these myths. And I think once one gets down to the ground and one looks what's happening, yeah, you're absolutely right. There's a whole bunch of things going on which involve very positive relationships between China and Africa. And I would point in particular, and we did some research on this, uh, to issues like training and capacity building of agricultural officials in government. I mean, China invests a huge amount of resources annually in getting African government officials over to China to work on uh, training courses of varying lengths, looking at uh, Chinese technologies, Chinese policies around agriculture, as well as many other areas in the development field. So uh, the investment in training is very substantial and is building a, uh, a rapport, a, a sense of connection between African officials and Chinese experts and officials. And the other theme uh, that I think is a positive one which uh, is very central to the agricultural technology development centers, which are flagship enterprise outfits of the Chinese aid program, uh, now in 23 countries across Africa. Um, and they are attempts by the Chinese state to demonstrate uh, Chinese agricultural technology of different sorts. They're run in each case by a Chinese company coming from very different parts of China and they are showing you know technologies of various sorts from seeds through to tractors through to processing equipment and so on and not all of them are functioning perfectly as yet but they just do offer 
I think, on behalf of the Chinese, a sense that uh, a, a genuine presence across Africa showing uh, the best of Chinese, uh, Chinese technology and expertise. Um, so the training and the technology exchange, I think, is a really important area. And perhaps in the longer term, far more important than, the, than investing directly in production, because the technology links uh, linked in turn to business and the training links linked in turn to government to government relations and building uh, sort of diplomatic connections with Africa. I think that will provide both of them a really solid platform for China to continue to interact on in Africa, way beyond any particular investments in uh, a particular area of land. Uh, that's the long game the Chinese are playing. Um, and the Chinese, as you well know, do play the long game. So I was wondering to take you back to the to the theme of training. Um, these officials being trained in China, what are they really being trained in? Is it mostly is it in relating to to running agribusiness? Um, is it more to you know kind of you know is is it a wide ranging kind of training in a lot of fields? Does it relate to a particular kind of crops? Um, yeah, if if you could unpack that a little bit. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, there's a huge number. I mean, overall, not just in agriculture, but uh, the latest figures show there's about 10,000 African um, government officials who go to China for various short-term training courses. Now, that's, as I say, not all in agriculture, but that's a huge number of people. Um, and they involve a, a vast variety of training courses. We studied a, a selection of them, ranging from very technically focused training courses, looking at particular technologies, everything from bamboo production and mushroom production through to uh, particular types of tillage arrangement and use of uh, different types of technology. Uh, but also there are courses on, as it were, the Chinese approach to agricultural development, bit of history, bit of politics, bit of... Um, policy and economics um, and those 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 courses are pitched at, at different um, different groups and of course of the African officials it ranges ev from everyone who's a relatively junior technical official in the minister Ministry of Agriculture or Department of Extension or whatever right through to senior officials higher up the ministry involved in policy level right up to ministerial level, so which who obviously go on shorter trips, more focused around political engagement. So it's a substantial investment, which I think is important as China uh, builds friendships and builds uh, links uh, for its longer term game uh, within Africa, which is associated uh, with trade, uh, with diplomatic relations, with, um, with agricultural production more generally. Um, so I think that the longer term hope is that these will provide a soft land, you know, help provide us soft landings for future investments uh, when those come. You know, I think it's interesting because when I get into these discussions with people about Chinese agriculture, I often have to remind them that China actually has a very interesting story and has a lot of really great experience and lessons that it can impart on Africa. And I think a lot of people forget that many of the same challenges that Africa's facing in terms of agricultural difficulties, uh, China faced or faces themselves. I mean, let's talk about desertification, 
which is the Gobi Desert in northern China is, is encroaching its way down, and the Chinese have been very effective in low water agriculture. Uh, we've, you know, feeding population that is so large with so little, China has about 20% of the world's population with about 4 or 5% of the world's arable land, and yet it's been able to kind of do more with its agriculture in the past 30, 35 years. And then also kind of the solutions that the Chinese develop are done in a developing world context. Uh, China remains one of the poorest countries in the world, and I think a lot of Africans are surprised to hear that. Uh, you know, China is rich, the Chinese are poor. And I think in some ways when we compare the experience of the Chinese, both in the contemporary but also in the past three or four decades, compare that to the experience of the West, I guess my question is, are, how are the Chinese and what they're doing Compared, you know, in the African agriculture, in terms of technical advice and assistance and investment, how does that compare with what's going on from Western countries? Well, I mean, you're absolutely right to say China has this extraordinarily rich experience, uh, particularly uh, centered post-reforms in uh, smallholder agriculture. And of course, that is the dominant form of agriculture in Africa. So there are real benefits from exchanging that experience, which, as you say, has resulted in uh, an intensification and a growth in productivity in smallholder systems across China uh, to feed its burgeoning population. And our Chinese colleagues will always point to this important history to say that our economic growth, which is everyone knows about these days, uh, is underpinned and has been underpinned over 30 years by this uh, agricultural revolution. And uh, that's what they want to share. Now, that said, there's no one Chinese model, as you both well know, um, and that's another myth that needs busting, the, the assumption that China has a particular model that it wants to export and that there's a one-size-fits-all fits all, uh, Chinese model for agriculture. This is far from it. There are debates within China, just as there are debates elsewhere about what the most appropriate form of agriculture is. And there are some within the uh, Chinese uh, technocratic administrations who will argue that actually no, that 30-year history um, of smallholder productivity increases is history. And actually the future for China and the future of the rest of the world is a high-tech, modernized version of agriculture more akin to the West. Um, and indeed within China you can see high-tech agriculture, grain production using, you know, vast areas of land, um, combine harvesters and all the rest of it, which wouldn't look any, it doesn't look any different to the United States prairies. So, you know, even within China, there are these debates about what is agriculture, what it's for, and where does it fit within development. And those debates also are being exported through its uh, engagement with Africa. So, some of these uh, agricultural technology development centers that I mentioned earlier on, some of them promote this high-tech agriculture. There's one in Zimbabwe that promotes you know, very fancy equipment uh, coming from a company based in the north of China where it's very successful. But in the context of smallholder agriculture in Zimbabwe, that version of agriculture really doesn't make sense, particularly post-land reform. Now you go to Ethiopia and a different company from a different part of China is promoting a very different set of Chinese technologies, uh, much more appropriate to smallholder systems and to the Ethiopian setting. So across these flagship uh, ATD 
CCs, technology centers, you see various variations of Chinese technology and Chinese agriculture reflecting that wider debate. So in answer to your question about how does this match up with the West, well, I think, um, you know, the, the recent experience of, of uh, Western agriculture is, is one which uh, probably doesn't have much export value in that sense to the African context. There is plenty of expertise in Euro-American institutions, but I think the immediate experience over the last 30 years, as you mentioned, of China's development is a, an important addition to the debate. And I think that's what our African colleagues and when you talk to colleagues in ministries of agriculture and research centers in Africa say, you know, they're quite sanguine about it. Well, the Chinese come with some ideas, they're not all good, but actually it's really good to have a choice. And what's important is to have a variety of different options that we can test out, we can try out and see what works in our settings. And that, I think, is one of the most important things about seeing China, Brazil, India, other countries with strong technological and development experiences entering the development debate so that it's not all constrained by a particular vision and view coming out of European or North American institutions. Kobus, and that just must that must just be a good thing. Yeah, Kobus, it's interesting to hear Dr. Schoons kind of lay this out because, I, to be honest with you, I didn't expect that this is what we were going to get. But kind of wrapping up some of the key themes we hear embedded in Dr. Schoons' analysis are many of the major themes of the broader China-Africa relationship. One, the Chinese are actually doing a lot more that's positive, but because of their crappy PR, it's not actually getting out to the world about what they're doing. Uh, you know, it, it, the fact that the Africans themselves appreciate having the choice and not necessarily dealing with paternalistic kind of prescriptions from the West, be that that the Chinese may be doing something similar, but at least they have an alternative, uh, and, and that the situation is not uniform, that... You know, we've heard this in, a, in several recent shows now that there is no singular Chinese model. There is no singular Chinese company. Uh, it's a very diverse set of actors that are kind of engaging Africa. And I think that's what's so interesting. And I, I really am surprised to be hearing it all kind of wrapped up in this agricultural issue, which I didn't think I would hear. Kobus, what are your final thoughts on this? Yes, I, I completely agree. I think it, it, another another similarity with other discussions we've had recently is that African decision making and African partnerships count for a lot more than is initially assumed. You know, one frequently thinks of African people being essentially dictated to by by foreign actors because the foreign actors are acting also as donors. Um, but you know, kind of as Ian pointed out, there's you know, kind of Af African authorities are looking at all of these options and making their choices and deciding what makes sense in local context and what doesn't. And to a large extent, what makes sense is de depends on where land reform is sitting in that particular country, and you end up not having to be able to to point at one particular African situation either. There's not a, a, a unified Chinese actor and there's not a unified African actor, and it, it tends to be very complicated on the ground. Ian, the final comments that you wrote in your, in your essay was, and let me quote you here, China plays the long game and our studies were observing just the opening stages. Uh, what does that mean? Where are we going now? Where are we going to be five, ten years from now if China's playing the long game and these are, in fact, just the opening stages? What can we expect? Difficult question because I don't have the crystal ball right in front of me. But I think what's important in relation to seeing all of these initiatives that we looked across 
is that a lot of it is about building a platform, building the relationships, building the connections and, and seeing, you know, soft power and diplomacy linking up with business and commerce, linking up with aid and development. But I think in the longer term, we will see uh, a greater cr internal critique, both by Africans of Chinese and of Chinese of themselves, uh, about what they're doing. Um, not everything is going to work. Uh, many things will fail. And I think one of the, um, the things that Chinese will always talk about is that learning by doing is exactly the way that China managed to move uh, through its reform uh, process uh, to the present. And I think that will be an important process to, to watch. There will certainly be more investments. There may be things that some people will call land grabs. There may be, there will be much more training. Uh, in 20 years' time, perhaps most African officials will have been trained at some point in China and not just in uh, the UK or South Africa or wherever. So I think it's, uh, and as you pointed out, I think this opportunity of having greater choice uh, and with that greater agency of African governments to negotiate, to bargain, to trade off between different uh, investors from different parts of the world can only be a good thing. So I'm quite positive about where things are going in, in the longer term, exactly how it will pan out. I'm afraid I don't know. Okay. Well, the article is Chinese engagement in African agriculture is not what it seems. You can find it over at theconversation.com, but it was reprinted all over the web. It's a fascinating article. Ian Schoons is a professorial fellow at the Institute of Development Studies at the University of Sussex. Thank you so much for joining us, Ian. We really appreciate it. Great. No, thanks for having me. And Kobus, if people want to follow what we're doing these days at the China Africa Project, what's the best way that people can stay in touch? The easiest way is on our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash China Africa Project. And there we run this 24-hour feed every four hours of a new news item, a China Africa related news item across a variety of different categories. Um, we also have a weekly newsletter which you can subscribe to on our webpage or on our Facebook page, uh, which is a, a summation of the China African news of the week. Um, uh, personally, I'm on Twitter at Stadnes. That's S-T-A-D-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And if you'd like to follow this podcast, you can find it over at the Asia Society's excellent Chinese website or Chinese-focused website called China File. We publish there every week. We're also on the World Post at the Huffington Post. Every show kind of pops up there. And of course, if you just want to subscribe right into your Android or iPhone device, uh, go to iTunes or Google Play and you can download our app and uh, you'll get every show delivered right there. So we will be there again very soon. We publish the shows every single week, but we'll be back again very soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening.